Good morning. Good morning. Am I on? I hope I am. Testing. Testing. Am I good? Can you hear me? All right. Take this mask off. Uh, well, you know, I get used to that thing. It's great to be with you guys this morning. Greetings. I was just up at uh, Central Campus preaching this morning, so it's uh, kind of a double duty day. Nothing like the old days of Parkview when we used to have double Saturday night services, and if you were on for the weekend, you had to preach five times, twice on Saturday, three times on Sunday morning. Uh, that, was, that was a workout. But this is a joy. I love East Campus, uh, probably mostly because my wife and I live in this neighborhood, and it's always such a thrill to hear what God's doing uh, with you guys as a church, with Faith Academy. It's just such a pleasure to be here. Uh, in case you don't know me, my name is Dave Foster. I'm a pastor of Family Ministries, and it's been uh, quite a year, hasn't it? It's been a blast. I have the privilege of working with some tremendously gifted people. Uh, in Parkview Student Ministries, I get to work with Mike DeWard and Ronnie and all of their team. In Children's Ministry, I get to work with Rhonda Crosser, who's the director of Children's Ministry, and Bonnie McGlumphrey, and all the people that they uh, work with there, and it's so much fun. However, this COVID year has been a challenge, hasn't it, for all of us, no matter what business you work in. Um, my wife and I, uh, for the first few months at least, we kind of isolated at home, like many of you did. Uh, we stayed there trying to do everything that we normally do through things like Zoom, Google Meet, you know, whatever we could do. And it's just not the same, you know. Uh, the technology is amazing, you know. It's the right hand of Satan in some ways. But nevertheless, you know, <laughs> we get through it and we enjoy it. But it does present us with some unique challenges and problems. Uh, it's not the same as just sitting down with somebody and talking to them. We do counseling. We do discipleship through Zoom. Um, you know, it seems like we're running a full week of ministry, but it's just different because we're not there. We're not in person. And that's the same problem that the Apostle Paul is facing as we uh, look at the uh, epistle to 1 Corinthians. Uh, he's not there. He's planted a church in Corinth. He's seen it grow. And then he's had to leave and go on and do his other church ministries, right? And by the time we catch up with Paul at this point, he's in the major city of Ephesus. And word has come to him that there's problems with the church back in Corinth. And he's trying to figure out what's the best thing to do for them. So Paul decides that he's not going to interrupt his journeys to go back there. You know, walking from Ephesus to Corinth is quite a trip. And he's not going to take a boat and go by sea. He instead decides, I'm going to write a letter. In fact, we know that Paul writes at least four letters, right? The first letter that's going to be referenced in our passage today, we don't have anymore. It's lost to history. The second letter, which we affectionately refer to as the epistle of 1 Corinthians, is what you have before you right now. There's a third letter that Paul writes called the Sorrowful Letter, and it's also lost to history. And then you have the fourth letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. 
So if we were going to be totally historically accurate, we would call the, the letters that we have 2nd and 4th Corinthians, right? 1st and 3rd are, are gone, but we have the privilege of seeing some references to them in the scriptures. Paul's feeling hopeless and helpless in a sense. These people, they need my attention. They're, this church, you know, they're going through such terrible things. They're obstreperous. They're recalcitrant. I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> the Grattans like that. I use those words all the time. They are. They're just, they're, they're a problem church. And we've been reading in the last few weeks about how they have divisions. Paul says there are divisions among you. They must be addressed. I cannot have it. Unity is so important in the church. And today, he's going to open up another can of worms on them. And he does such with such emphasis. Now, the chapter and verse divisions in this letter, of course, are artificial to the text. They were added much, much, much later. This is a letter. Paul pours his heart out into it. If you get an opportunity, I highly recommend that you sit down, take 20 minutes, it read this epistle, this letter, to the Corinth church in one sitting. Hear him, feel him, get in between the sentences, try to understand what his passion is as he writes to them. And if you do that, you're going to come across the fact that when you get to what we call chapter 5, he is angry, he is upset, he's worried, and finally he is repulsed by what's going on there. Let's jump into this. And I love the fact that Paul uses a very unique construction in the original language here to kind of convey to the readers, hey, there's something going on here that should not be happening. I am mad. I'm repulsed. It is actually reported, it says in verse 1, that there is a sexual immorality among you. It is actually reported. It has been said. He's hearing things. Probably what's happening in Ephesus is that people for, who are intimately acquainted with what's going on at the church of Corinth are traveling to Ephesus to see Paul, imploring him to take action. We're going to lose this church. It's not going to go well. Probably the household of Chloe, Stephanas, some others, they're telling him this thing is happening. And this thing is sexual immorality. It's a great sin. Now, the word for sexual uh, immorality here is the Greek word porneia, which we in English have stolen, and we have translated that into pornography, right? That's not what this is necessarily referring to. That's a specific thing that happens in our culture. But that word in the Greek just means general sexual immorality. There's a problem here. Paul says, it has been reported it's come to my attention, and I'm sickened by it. There is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not even tolerated by the pagans. This church of Corinth is in the midst, as all of Paul's churches were, of a Gentile culture, a Roman-ruled culture, and they had certain ethical things they would do and not do even though they did not subscribe to a belief in Jesus Christ as being God. And he says, what you're doing as a church, and this is in the plural, by the way, even though he's focusing on one man's sin, he's talking to them about the whole church. It's not even tolerated among the pagans. 
for a man has his father's wife. Paul is choosing to use almost a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 18. It's the same terminology that we see when we look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which was the common Old Testament for the apostles. But he says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. He's having sex with his father's wife. If you go to Leviticus 18, you look at verse 7, the Levitical law in the time of Moses, they're writing to the nation of Israel, they're setting forth an ethical understanding of relationships and one of the things that comes out <coughs> is that you are you cannot sleep with your parent you cannot uncover your father's nakedness this is sin and then in the verse 8 it says you cannot uncover your father's nakedness by sleeping with your father's wife which probably assuredly in the structure of the hebrew there is referencing uh, a stepmother uh, your father uh, has a second wife. He has a third wife. Not uncommon in the days of Israel when mortality rates, especially in childbirth, are so great. If your wife dies, you can take a second wife. If your second wife dies, you can take a third wife. In no way can his progeny, his sons, have any kind of uh, illicit relationship with that person. Because once the father marries that woman, she becomes his they are a one unit, and according to God, to do so is to uncover your father's nakedness. Now, in Leviticus, the penalty for doing this kind of sin is death. It's death. It's very clear. And it's not only just a penalty of death, but the entire congregation, if you will, of Israel as a nation is expected to say amen. We agree with this. This is the way it should be. But Paul is saying, fast forward to Corinth in his day, that this thing is happening, and not only is it not being punished, but people are actually applauding it. Good job. Way to be so open-minded. And Paul says in verse 2, two words in the Greek, four here, and you are arrogant. You're full of hubris. You're proud. What are they proud of? Why would they be proud of a sin? Well, what they're proud of is how tolerant they are. They're proud of the fact that they can put up with this. Uh, we open our church doors to everybody. We overlook the uh, sins of some. We don't make a big issue of it. We want everyone to feel accepted. It's a church of tolerance. And Paul says, you are arrogant. This isn't your church. This church doesn't belong to you. This church belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his church. You don't have the right to make that determination. In fact, he's already said what his opinion is on such matters, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't you understand the gravity of the situation? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Three things that Paul says in chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, remove him. Cleanse the leaven out of there and purge such a person from your midst. Three imperative commands. There's no doubt what Paul is saying here. This will not be tolerated. There's several reasons why Paul is so concerned for this. 
And it really is not a focus on this man. Sounds like it, but it isn't. He's concerned for the church. And three reasons for that. One is that he's concerned with the fact that the church, like all churches, is planted right in the middle of a pagan culture. They live in the midst of a pagan culture that practices all kinds of sexual deviancy, right? Paul in Ephesus, there's the temple to Diana with their temple prostitution, male and female. The church at Corinth practices the Corinthian games, and every so often, all of the uh, empire, if they can make it and can afford it, come upon Corinth, and there's games, and there's drunkenness, and there's all kinds of wrong, sinful behavior. And that's the culture they live in. And the church, if they continue on with the sin that they're doing in the church, will no longer be able to flavor, to be the salt that they're commanded to be to that world that surrounds them. That was what we're supposed to be. Christ says that. We are to be the salt, the flavorers. And the only way that salt works is if you introduce it to whatever you're trying to flavor. I love to put salt on a couple of things. My mother was a world-renowned what uh, salt lover. She just put salt. I mean, this woman would put salt on lettuce salads, on apple pie. You know, her blood pressure was always like 80 over 22 or something. I don't know. It was ridiculous. I, I despised her ability to do that, right? But she loved salt. But salt doesn't do you any good sitting in the shaker. It's got to come out. It's got to get in and mix that. But if we allow sin to exist in our midst, that salt can no longer do the job that it was created to do. Same thing with his uh, metaphor of the light under the basket, right? The light can only shine if you take the basket away, if it has an opportunity to penetrate the darkness. And so Paul is concerned. He says he thinks that the Gentile culture, they're not going to get it if we allow this sin to exist. Secondly, he's concerned because there's a group of people that were prevalent at this time that we call Judaizers. They were people that were Christians, but they were from a Jewish background, and they believed that much of the Jewish mores and ethics and lifestyle ought to be continued as Christians. So let men be circumcised. Let's observe the Sabbath. Let's observe the feast days and so forth. And Paul was constantly saying to them, no, in the gospel, there is no such thing as Jew or Gentile. There are only people who follow Christ. But if they got wind of what was happening in Corinth, and the church in Corinth didn't take action against that, and Paul allowed that to exist, then that charge that they've always been ready to accuse Paul of was, oh, yes, you let these Gentiles come right into the church. There's no conviction for what they're doing. It's an easy believerism. It's just free grace. We can't have that. Thirdly, Paul was concerned because the council of Jerusalem that he regularly had to appear before and argue for his ministry to the Gentiles, if they got wind of this, that people were living in this style and the church did nothing about it, Paul's whole ministry might be condemned. Paul saw himself as the apostle to the Gentiles and because they were Gentiles, they were not given, once they became believers, special leeway to continue living in Gentile-like sins. So Paul is very concerned, not just for this man, but also for the church. 
its reputation, the reputation of Jesus Christ in that community, the reputation of the Apostle Paul who founded that church. Do you think of the fact that often when you guys get together, you're representative of several layers of people who have given you godly advice, teaching, love, and so forth. What we do privately in our homes is not private. What we do in the dark will be revealed to the light. And when that happens, whatever your lifestyle may be, it's going to reflect back upon those who first led you to Christ, those who discipled you, those who rub shoulders with you in church, or at least once COVID is over, they'll rub shoulders with you in church, right? It's not just an isolated individual. It hits all of us. So Paul comes through with a very strong set of statements here. He says, um, for though I'm absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. I've done this as an apostle. I've already written to you in my first letter my judgment about this situation. And yet you have not acted on it. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now what in the world does that mean? How do we deliver someone to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Over the years there have been several interpretations of this, but I'm just going to focus on one this morning. I'm going to go back to the early church father's view of this because I think it's the most valid in the context of this whole letter. But Paul is basically saying this. Take this man and all the privileges that he has from being associated with the church at Corinth. I want that removed from him, and I want him to be more or less cast out. He's going to go back into the world. Satan's domain, his realm, is everywhere but the church. When you become a member of the church, there is special spiritual protection that is given to you, right? Right. When God's not there, you can become a victim. You can become someone that Satan and his dominions will persecute and will come after. You could be someone that God doesn't pay special attention to. If you look at Acts chapter 2, you'll see a listing of what the early church was like. The church should be a place where you can mutually support one another. In the first century church, that was definitely true. People would come together. They would sell things that they could uh, get money for so they could support others who had nothing. They would, if they had medical skills, treat one another. They would cook for one another. People weren't supposed to go hungry in the church. That was their job. But once you're cast out, you have none of those privileges. And Paul was saying basically this. Kick this guy out. Send him out of the church. Put him into the world. Actually, Satan in this instance will become God's deliverer of his sin. Satan will become God's deliverer of his sin. And we know it's not a death issue because Paul says, what's the point of this? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We want him redeemed. We want him brought back into the church. The point isn't you're kicked out forever. The point is... Hopefully this will be a temporary situation in which you can return. Then Paul goes on and says this, your boasting is not good. 
It just isn't. You're thinking, you're taking such pride in the fact that you have such great minds and that you have such big spirits that you can just overlook it. Now, the odds are what happened with this man was that before he became a believer, this side of the cross, he had gotten involved in a relationship with his stepmother. Uh, either his dad died or something else uh, happened and he got involved with her. Then he became a Christian, probably. And in so doing, he has a new life in Christ. He joined the church. And he brought this relationship with him. Now, he was probably wealthy. He was a, probably a man of prominence. He was used to being in charge. And the people of the church, as so often happens, were like, ooh, this is so great. We have a guy from society that is, is a man of respect and a man of power and a man of wealth. Yes, let's bring him in. Well, but there's, there's one problem. He has a relationship with his stepmother. That's called incest, according to the Old Testament. Well, we can't let that happen. But, but look who he is. And the church decided, as a group, I guess, that they were not going to call this man out on this sin. In fact, enough time went on that he probably became a leader in the church. He was probably leading one of those factions that Paul addressed in chapters 3 and 4. And he says, no, your boasting is not good. This cannot be. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul's going to give two leaven illustrations here. Leaven is kind of like yeast. It's not exactly the same thing. But if you are a cooker here today, a baker especially, you know that if you get leaven, it's a bacteria-laden uh, object, and you can take it and you can add flour and water to it and you mix it and you can make a bread loaf and you let it sit and that leaven will actually spread throughout the loaf and it will raise and when it's right where you want it you put it in the oven to cook it that's your nourishment for the day thing is you don't use all of the leaven do you you keep back some of it and then daily you can go to this leaven and do the same process and every day, it will spread throughout the loaf that you've created, causing it to rise. And Paul says, don't you know that? And of course, the, the simple answer is, yeah, they all knew that. This was not a hard word picture for them to grasp. And he's saying, that's what this sin is like. Not the sin of the man, but the sin of your church. This church is the bread loaf. And because you are allowing this sin to exist here, your bread loaf, your church, is beginning to reflect that leaven. You're more like him than you are like Christ. That can't be. Secondly, he says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In most homes of Jewish people, they did cook with leaven. They made their bread with leaven, right? But once a year, at least once a year, they were required by Jewish law to go through, usually the lady of the house would do this, and gather all the lumps of leaven that they might have uh, from cups, from bowls, from the oven, from wherever they did their food prep. They had to get rid of it. They had to toss it out 
because the Passover feast required bread that was unleavened to be part of that regular meal. And following right on top of Passover is what? The festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, they had to eat bread that was totally unleavened. And Paul was saying, just like you do in your home, when that time of the year comes around and you search around and you're looking for bits of leaven and you don't want it to contaminate your unleavened bread because, again, according to Jewish law, if you partake of leavened bread during the Feast of Unleavened Breads, once again, you're cut off from your people. The rabbis actually had 36 sins listed that would garner you trouble like this. And one of them was sleeping with your father's wife. Another one was violating Passover law. So get rid of it. So there's no chance of that happening to you. Again, you're the bread, right? You're the loaf preparing for the fire so that you can be prepared for Christ. And you don't allow leaven into the purity of that experience. You don't. You have to deal with it. So again, he uses the imperative command. Cleanse. Get rid of it. Throw it out. Honor the Lord. Drop down to verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world. So Paul is saying, this is that reference to the previous letter that I was talking about. Paul is saying, I wrote to you before, do not become part of the sexual practices of the people around you. The church should be unique about that. So don't associate with that. Don't even go around them. If you're going to be tempted to get into it, right? But don't act like them. To associate doesn't just mean, well, I'm standing at the bus stop and here comes a sexually immoral person. I guess I'm walking today. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't have the same fellowship with them that you do with members of the church. Do not associate. And then he'll say <coughs> in a second here, don't even eat with them. Don't come to the Lord's table. Don't come to the love feast. Don't come to that place where it's celebrated what Jesus did for us on the cross. You see, you used to be over here before the cross. You lived a life of sin. Then you accepted Jesus as your Savior. You became a Christian, and you went to this side of the cross. And as you do so, things fundamentally change for you. A person who's living a sexually immoral life should be still on that side of the cross. That's what Paul is saying, right? But in this case with the church at Corinth, that's not happening. Now that person has come to this side of the cross and they're living their old life just like they used to, or their new life, just as they used to live their old life. He says, think about this. Since then, you would need to go out into the world but now I'm writing to you, now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who's a believer, if he's guilty of sexual immorality. And then he starts adding sins here. Greed, idolatry, reviler, drunkard, swindler. If you go to Galatians chapter 5 and you look at verse 19, Paul has a rather exhaustive list of sins that were common in Greek culture. A lot of them. And as you read through those, or if you go to Romans 1, 
and read through those, uh, you immediately begin to think, wow, there's some things here that I kind of still do. I'm in this after the cross group, but I still sin. See, Paul's not saying this. He's not saying you should be a perfect people. Uh, you don't sin ever. That's not his call here. He's talking about what the sin the Corinthian church is doing is they are not repenting when this sin is called to their attention. They are not changing their heart attitude. I can't tell you how many times a brother in Christ has come to me and said, Dave, I've observed you doing this. This has to change. Uh, we see that with King David in the Old Testament, don't we? So that when we get to the book of Romans, it says, Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Referencing David. Now think of the sins that David did. Oh my goodness. These are not little, you know, S sins. These are capital S sins. And yet he's forgiven. There is forgiveness in the blood of Christ. But you have to want that. You have to go for that, and you have to make that commitment. I'm changing my path. I'm no longer going to go this way. I'm going to go this way. And you say, well, yeah, if you're like a lot of us, yeah. I keep going back and over and over the same sins again and again. I gossip. I, I get, lose my temper. I, 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 I can't let go of, of pornography. I, I, they're just things that are just infested in my life. And I feel so bad. But see, by the fact that you're feeling bad and ashamed... That means you're on the right track. You're not in this camp with the Corinthians. They didn't feel that shame. They weren't feeling bad. They were taking upon themselves that we're just going to be a church of broken and defeated people. And they, they raised that up like a badge of honor. Well, yeah, you can be broken and defeated, but you're broken and defeated in Christ, right? who then has given you a new life, a new identity. You are now a citizen of heaven. You are now been adopted into the family of God. You've been predestined from the beginning of the world to be the person that you're to be today. The Holy Spirit has sealed you for your salvation. We don't wallow in our sin and get to a point where we just, well, there's no sense. I might as well just continue on living like this. I'll never get the hang of this. No. You go to the Lord and you ask his forgiveness. You confess your sins to one another, 1 John 1, 9. In the church, when we get together, we confess our sins. We are aware that we're not perfect, but we understand that we've been forgiven and that we're walking with Christ. We don't continue to parade our old way of life in front of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul writes on in verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with this person who is a Christian if he's guilty of sexual immorality and all these sins. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Those are things that should be happening out in the world and in fact are happening out there. See, Paul is not pushing for some kind of separatism. And the church has gotten this way too confused. When I first became a believer in the 70s, I, I got a chance to go to Grace University in Omaha. And there they didn't allow smoking, drinking, dancing, playing cards, facial hair, whatever. Very strict, socially speaking. And I didn't understand it. And I went to the dean of students and I said, show me in the word of God where these things are addressed. And he showed me a couple of verses on a couple of things. But 
ultimately he had to confess, these are just our mores, our ethics. And we require them of our students. But he says, Dave, you don't have to follow them until you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you of that. Wow, that was amazing. So for the first two years at Grace, I lived off campus. I think that's another reason he felt kind of safe and let me go a little astray. But I just kind of lived like I'd always lived. But my junior year, I felt like God was tapping me and saying, you know what, you go here voluntarily. Let's get your act together. You see, it's not about the world. The problem I had with that whole attitude with the college was it was a city set upon a hill. I lived in Omaha. I grew up there. And here's this Christian university of amazing teachers and students. And I'd never heard of it. I never understood it. In their culture, they separated from the world. And that's the problem the church has. You have nothing to fear from the world. And one man wrote, the church has nothing to fear from a Christless world. But they have everything to fear from a Christless church. Separation is going to happen because of church discipline to the people right here. We're never called to separate from the world. We have nothing to fear from the world. If you're walking with Christ, get in there, rub elbows, live in their lives, help them to understand things. What good are we? We're not salt, we're not light, if we just stay in our little holy campuses, right? We have to get out there. But the inverse of that is even worse, where we live like the world, even in here, where we don't address sin issues in here, in the church. Paul says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. There's a final emphatic command. Purge the evil person from among you. We've all seen examples of men that somehow were revered, were followed, were honored. We learned from them. And then we found out there was a double life, right? We've seen that just recently with a bunch of guys, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr., Ravi Zacharias, all these guys that have come to national prominence now are nationally disgraced. And you have to ask yourself, where was their church? What was going on that we have gotten away from what Paul blueprints here as the role of the church? Let me say this to you. If you put your focus on men, if you're following a church or a teaching because of the person up front doing it, you're going to be disappointed every single time. There's no such thing as great men. There's only a great God. Right? And Paul is saying this. God wants purity more than unity. Kind of reflects the Old Testament, right? I would rather have your uh, obedience than sacrifice. God wants us to be those people. We want to be the called out ones. We want to be the ones that get together and we support one another. Not in sin, but in righteousness. That's the whole point of what we're doing. The church should model countercultural standards for the world to watch. And we can't do that if our people that are representative of the church are living just like the world. We have to show them now. We're not trying to judge you. We're just showing you 
This is what it means to follow Christ. I love my wife, but sometimes she drives me nuts, and you don't know what it's like to live with her. It's just something else. But I'm staying with her, right? You know? No, that's not true. We have to have marriages that are strong, family relationships with our kids that we're doing the best we can. That's not always going to mean you're perfect, but it just means <coughs> we're holding things to short account with God. When I upset my spouse, I have to go to the Lord and say, what have I done? And I have to go to my spouse and say, I want it to be different. The world is looking at us. They're judging us based upon how we handle relationships and how we live our life. And Paul says what the Corinth church was doing is not acceptable. Kick them out. Cleanse. Purge. When's the last time you saw church discipline happen in any church? The Lord himself in Matthew 18 goes through that list. First, go to a brother that offends you one-on-one. -on -one. Talk to him. See if he will repent. Then if he won't, take two or three witnesses with you. Talk to that brother. See if he'll repent. If he won't, then you get to the point where the whole church witnesses against him. And they lose that status in the church. And if they don't, even Jesus himself says, regard that man like a tax collector and a sinner. He doesn't belong. Hopefully, steps one and two won that brother or sister back to Christ. But this is something that the church is woefully inadequate on. Third world churches practice church discipline way more often than a North American church. When they look at us, they see a church that is covetousness and smug. We're leaven in their eyes because we don't take care of business. The only thing I can encourage us on this morning is that we look to ourselves, as Paul says to do. We judge ourselves. This church needs to not be a people of no sin, but a people that is regularly asking the Lord's forgiveness for their sin and encouraging one another in how redemption looks, how repentance looks, and in such so doing, we gain strength. And then we can be the salt to the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love and your grace. I thank you for your word. Father, this is a difficult chapter to walk through. It makes me uncomfortable and makes many uncomfortable. But this is the way you put it. You are God. You created us. You're our sustainer. We have to live by your ethical code. Father, forgive us when we want to live by our own. Help us to be humble. Help us to walk after you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.